morning, good evening, good afternoon, and good night. Welcome back to the Shelter and Warning podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are a Monster of the Week podcast, literally. Every episode, we cover a new monster. Monsters can be both fact and fiction, and they're usually hiding in plain sight. The more you know about monsters, the better equipped you are to protect yourself if you ever have to face one. A quick note before we start. If anything I say is inaccurate, insensitive, offensive, or should be added to, contact me. I'm trying my best to find accurate information on my topics, but I welcome all corrections and would love to have an open dialogue on any larger issues. All social media handles and my email will be in the description, and I'll say them at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. Our topic today, werewolves. How is this myth so incredibly widespread? What can the werewolf represent? And what could have caused this ancient story? Stats. One of the first werewolf myths could come from the Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh, which is the world's oldest piece of literature and dates back to the 21st century BC. Other sources for the original werewolf myth date back to the 1st century AD and the 11th century AD. One possible werewolf, the Beast of Jevudan, killed about 100 men, women, and children between the years of 1764 and 1767. Silver bullets and the full moon affecting werewolves both came into prominence in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, along with werewolf fiction, although both parts of the myth have been recorded earlier, and there are about 150 werewolf movies to date. Depending on your definition of werewolf, there are several places where the werewolf myth could have started. Here, I'm using a very broad definition, as it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what is a werewolf and what counts as some other mythology. A werewolf or lycanthrope is any human who is transformed somehow into a wolf. While more modern definitions include that werewolves can only transform when there's a full moon, or that werewolves can switch back and forth from human to wolf form, and sometimes to something in between, many older cultures were much simpler. Other creatures and cultures have werewolf-like stories that surround them, such as a were-cat, were-tiger, or were-leopard, and I'll be mentioning those too, but in order to be a true werewolf, there needs to be, well, a wolf. The oldest possible record of the werewolf is from the Mesopotamian story The Epic of Gilgamesh. In one part, Gilgamesh leaves a former lover because she had turned her previous state into a wolf, which feels like a good idea. Ancient Greek mythology also has a version of the werewolf story. Doubting the omnipotence and knowledge of Zeus, king of the gods, Greek king Lycaon served a child to Zeus. To punish him, Zeus turned Lycaon and his 50 sons into wolves. Early Nordic folklore also has a variation on werewolf lore. In the saga of the Volsungs, a father and son discover wolf pelts that are able to turn people into wolves for 10 days. They use this newfound power to go on a killing spree in the forest, which only ends when the father attacks and lethally injures his son. The son only survives the attack due to a kind raven, which gives the father a healing leaf. Throughout the Middle Ages, werewolf myths continued to pop up across Europe. There was widespread belief in werewolves, to the point where they were often included in codes of law, several tomes and books on lycanthropy were written, and hundreds of people were tried as werewolves, along with the better-known witch hunts of the time. However, many of these so-called werewolves are theorized or proven to have simply been serial killers in disguise. Pierre Bergot and Michael Verdun, two Frenchmen, brutally murdered children and confessed to having an ointment that turned them into wolves, which they'd received from the devil. 
Giles Garnier was another Frenchman who lived at the same time as Brigot and Verdun. He, too, claimed to have an ointment that turned him into his wolf, and in his wolf form, killed and ate children. Garnier was burned at the stake for his crimes and for his admittance to being a werewolf, as fire was considered one of the only ways to kill them. The Bedburg werewolf is another example of a killer being accused of lycanthropy. Peter Stubb was a wealthy farmer in Bedburg, Germany, who was accused of being a werewolf by hunters who allegedly saw him transforming from wolf to man. A rash of gruesome killings in the area had led to townspeople believing a werewolf was loose, and Peter was charged with lycanthropy and murder. After several hours of torture, he confessed to the killing and eating of animals, men, women, and children. He also claimed to have had a magic belt that allowed him to turn into a wolf. Unsurprisingly, the belt has never been found, and historians to this day debate his guilt and his innocence. Another potential case of the werewolf is the Beast of Gévaudan. Between the years of 1764 and 1767, about a hundred people were killed in the rural area of Gévaudan, France. Many believed it was a wolf or other large creature, but there was also a large part of the population that believed the beast was a werewolf. The beast was described as like a wolf, yet not a wolf, and its victims called it massive, with qualities of a panther, eagle, and deer. The beast went after children and young women, with the occasional lone male victim, and it was an ambush hunter, usually attacking in the early morning or late evenings. Theories for what the beast could have been include extinct animals, such as a bear dog or dire wolf. Many also believe the beast was actually a human serial killer, possibly one using an army dog to help carry out their attacks. Other plausible explanations include either a striped hyena or a young male lion that had escaped from captivity, a dog-wolf hybrid, a wolf, and of course, a werewolf. The last theory is only strengthened by the fact that the man who apparently killed the beast did so with silver bullets. There are several theories as to what causes lycanthropy. The more common ideas include being bitten by a werewolf or being born into a family of werewolves, while other myths include a curse, a magic item that allows a person to shift into a wolf, or simply a scratch from the werewolf. Non-European cultures also have their own versions of werewolves that are often based on who the large predators are in their part of the world. Where hyenas are a mythical creature from across Africa, where tigers exist across India and Indonesia along with other parts of Southeast Asia, and where pumas along with where jaguars are present in South and Latin American folklore. The idea of a werewolf, like many mythological creatures, is decently widespread, and many cultures have their own versions. One reason for how widespread this myth is deals with psychology. Up until very recently, up until very recently, large predators such as wolves, tigers, hyenas, pumas, and jaguars were massive threats to humans that we couldn't really fight against, and it makes sense that these fears would, over thousands of years, evolve into folklore and myth. There are also some health conditions that could have possibly caused or continued the myth of the werewolf. Now, before I go into these, I will say that none of these medical issues deserve the stigma or the negative associations that they often face, and the people who have these conditions already have difficult lives without being called werewolves on top of those. None of these medical conditions are proven to have caused the werewolf myth, and there is no merit to acting like they have. British doctor Lee Ellis wrote a paper in 1963 where he argued that some of the most recorded or reported traits of a werewolf match up with the most recorded and reported symptoms of porphyria, namely psychosis, reddish teeth, and sensitivity to light. However, this has been argued against by many of his colleagues, as a large part of the werewolf myth is the wolf part, 
and porphyria doesn't account for that. Also, light sensitivity and reddish teeth appear in almost no werewolf myths, especially when the werewolf is in human form, so it's pretty bad theory all around. Another medical condition that is theorized to be the root cause of the werewolf myth is Pitt-Hopkins syndrome. In the early 1700s, a child named Peter was found wandering through the woods on all fours. He was thought to have been raised by wolves, or part wolf himself, and he lived his life as a pet in the courts of King George I and II. Peter likely had Pitt-Hopkins, which is characterized by seizures, difficulty speaking, distinct facial features, and difficulty breathing. While some may have thought Pitt-Hopkins was a symptom that a person was a werewolf or raised by wolves, that was almost certainly not because of anything particularly wolf-like, and instead simply a way for people to explain symptoms and diseases away before they had the medical knowledge to explain and understand them. Pitt-Hopkins is not the cause of the modern werewolf myth. Rather, an individual who had Pitt-Hopkins was used to justify and perpetuate a werewolf myth that had nothing to do with him and really didn't have all that much to do with his disease. Other possible explanations for the werewolf myth include rabies, which comes from the bite of an infected wild animal and can, as some 19th century sources say, drive people mad. Hypertrichosis is a rare genetic disorder that causes excessive hair growth, and individuals with this disease could have been pushed out of society and considered werewolves. Finally, there's a rare psychological condition named lycanthropy that causes the victim to believe that they're transforming into a wolf or some other animal. This could potentially explain the serial killers and myths where perfectly ordinary humans believe that they are wolves. However, all of these conditions are extremely rare, and the werewolf myth is incredibly common across Europe. The most likely explanation is that the human psyche created a monster out of a common predator in order to make it scarier. And also, that's what human brains do. We create stories. Then, throughout history, as people would present with cases of the diseases mentioned above, or others would present with similar symptoms, they would be called or considered a werewolf, lending credibility to the myth. That's the most likely explanation for how folklore and the human brain work. Myths are almost never caused by one thing, especially one as widespread and varied as werewolves. Rather, they're layered and built upon themselves over centuries until they have a rich folklore behind them and several explanations that could all be plausible. Like the list of medical conditions that could have contributed to werewolf myths, the werewolf has come to symbolize several things in media and pop culture. In the 1940s, especially during World War II and right afterwards, werewolves grew to symbolize Nazis and Nazi Germany. This was intentional. Hitler was well known for his belief in mythology, such as the Holy Grail, numerology, and of course, werewolves. He believed in werewolves and regular wolves as a symbol of German strength and power. In fact, he named a group of paramilitary fighters werewolves, and their job was to distract and frighten the Allies and the Soviet Union, both of whom he was fighting on the Eastern Front of the war. The rise of the werewolf in horror fiction and cinema around the 1940s could likely be traced back to this. By using the werewolf as a callback to Nazi Germany, horror films had both a built-in villain and a subconscious note of fear to draw from. Werewolves can also represent the poor or working class in society. While vampires are depicted as remote and luxurious, often living in a castle and feeding on peasants or the working class, werewolves are usually just regular people. In fact, in many stories, one of the first indicators of a werewolf is missing livestock usually chickens or goats, both of which are cheap, easy to keep, and have historically been animals that belong to the poor. 
Contrast that with the first sign of a vampire, which is usually missing small children or missing young women. In modern-day fiction, werewolves are especially likely to be portrayed as low income, especially when compared to vampires in the same story. Some common in-universe explanations for this include not being able to hold down a steady job due to the nature of a werewolf transformation, werewolves being considered more animalistic or uncivilized than vampires, the shorter lifespan for werewolves that's present in a lot of fiction, so they don't have as much time to amass wealth, and the fact that lycanthropy is often written as being hereditary, making werewolves have to provide for children and family unlike most vampire stories, where vampires simply turn whoever they choose. Another thing that werewolves are often seen as representing is the queer community. As Philip Bernhard Howes writes, werewolves, thus, are a much greater threat to any enduring sense of identity. Werewolves are constantly evolving, usually on the edges of society, and that, combined with their ever-changing mythology and the fact that werewolves are not immortal, creates this idea of werewolves as a transgression to everyday society, and sets them up in the allegory to how queerness is reacted to and treated. Because both werewolves and many LGBTQ people exist outside of the rigid structures defined by the culture and society they exist in, both are treated in a certain way, and this leads LGBTQ people to have a kinship with the idea of werewolves. One major example of this trope in action is Remus Lupin from the Harry Potter series. By the way, I like J.K. Rowling just about as much as the next person does. Her history of violent transphobia, along with her long history of every other type of discrimination, are abhorrent. Lupin, however, was confirmed by J.K. Rowling to be gay in 2016, and his lycanthropy was said to be an HIV metaphor. Queer fans of the book rejoiced and were affronted in equal parts. On one hand, this confirms what many of them had already picked up on and believed. On the other, however, Lycanthropy as a metaphor for HIV reinforced many of the worst stereotypes that surround the queer community, specifically gay men and those who are HIV positive. The only other named werewolf in the books is Fenrir Greyback, who takes a special pleasure in turning young children, and Lupin is seen as a good werewolf because he never acts upon his nature. This is almost word for word the stereotypes about gay men being pedophiles or preying on children. And the idea that being gay is fine, as long as you don't act on your urges. 1. Being queer is fine and beautiful and should be celebrated. Queer people are not pedophiles, they deserve to be able to express their queerness freely, and the fact that they were able to find representation in a latently homophobic portrayal of a character who the author didn't even acknowledge as a gay man until 20 years after the book was published is remarkable. Two. This example perfectly encapsulates the struggle that many LGBTQ people have with accepting the werewolf as a queer monster. For some, reclaiming a monster, and by extension, the idea of themselves as something that will perpetually be too scary or too much for most people, can be not only empowering, but comforting. For others, the idea of reclaiming a monster may seem like the antithesis of everything they've been working toward, and contradictory to their eventual goal of being accepted. Neither idea or perspective is wrong. There's never one single way to go about having a marginalized identity, and there's certainly never a wrong way to navigate a complex and fraught issue that deals with this identity. However, it is always better to be radically different than it is to try and seek tolerance or acceptance. Because in order for there to be tolerance or acceptance, there also needs to be a set of things that are not tolerable and not acceptable and those goalposts are constantly being moved.
At least if you're a monster, you get used to being hated. I hope this episode of the Shelter and Warning podcast entertained and educated you. If it did, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. You can find the Shelter and Warning podcast at Shelter and Warn on Twitter, at TikTok, Instagram, and Tumblr at Shelter and Warning Podcast, or contact us through email at shelterandwarningpodcast at gmail.com. Full transcripts of our show, along with a list of all of our sources, are available in our Google Drive. Once again, if there are any corrections or additions that you would like to make, contact me and I will do my best to address them. Thank you so much for listening, and good luck. You'll need it. (laughs) 